This is a recording from a Sunday meeting of the BC Humanist Association in Vancouver. The opinions expressed in this podcast do not necessarily reflect those of the BCHA or its board of directors. To learn more about humanism and to support our work, visit bchumanist.ca and make sure to follow us on Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram, and be sure to subscribe to the BC Humanist Podcast. Today we have Dale Beierstein and Lee Mahler, and they're going to be talking about skeptics then and now. We have the two of them today, and they're going to sort of tag team it, and welcome our speakers, Dale and Lee. Thanks for the introduction. This kind of looks like uh, old home week uh, for for me, given the talk about the origins of the BC skeptics and the skeptical, the modern skeptical movement. Because there are several people here today who were uh, there at the very first meeting of the BC skeptics. Uh, Bill Henry. Um, who later moved to uh, Winnipeg and founded the Manitoba Skeptics. Uh, Lee Moeller, again. Frank, I can't remember whether you were at the first meeting or not. I don't remember. Uh, It came about because we got a list of uh, subscribers to the Skeptical Inquirer, and Frank was a subscriber, but I can't remember if he showed up at the meeting. And uh, Conrad, were, Conrad Hadlin, were you at the? Were, other, were, you, were you at that first meeting? No, I wasn't. Uh, but but shortly after. Uh, yeah. 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 Uh, so this really is a kind of old home week for the for the BC skeptics. Uh, but I, I wanted to to begin going back in history a little bit farther than that, a few ten ten or so years before that, to the origins of the sort of the the big uh, organization that. Uh, turned skepticism around in the mid-70s, the organization PSYCOP, uh, as, as it then was, and it's now called CSI, the Committee for the Scientific Investigation of the Claims of the Paranormal, um, grew out of the humanist movement. Paul Kurtz, who is professor of philosophy at uh, State University of New York at uh, Buffalo, uh, a philosopher, which makes me feel good because I fancy myself as almost one too, was uh, the president of the American Humanist Association in the mid-70s. And uh, in 1976, he thought that uh, uh, the paranormal was, uh, um, at that time, really getting out of control, um, and that it was time for uh, humanists and academics to do their bit to um, try to turn the tide. Um, and history will tell us whether uh, successful they were at that. Look in your newspaper, you still see the horoscopes. Uh, look on any day of the week on the television and see how many programs there really take a skeptical point of view. Um, but at least uh, uh, we can say that it probably kept the tide from coming in any further than it has. But anyway, in 1976, um, uh, Paul Kurtz wanted to um, have a, a statement in the Humanist magazine, which was the official organ of the American Humanist Association, condemning astrology, or at least presenting the arguments for why astrology was not based on, on scientific grounds. And uh, he uh, put together a, a list of uh, people to sign this document, 186 uh, well-respected scientists, including 18 Nobel Prize winners, and uh, did get it published in The Humanist, but 
not after, not without a lot of uh, flack and, and disgruntlement. There were a lot of people in the American Humanist Association at that time who uh, were relativists. They basically didn't want to take a stand on, on anything, didn't think that they could tell whether anything was true and weren't even certain that there is a concept of truth, something which has been um, a movement in philosophy for um, a very long time. Anyway, Kurtz did get his document published. Uh, some of us in this room uh, have met Paul Kurtz and or know him anyway, um, and uh, they, they will be able to attest uh, how when Paul Kurtz wants to do something, uh, he gets it done. <laughs> but so he decided that uh, uh, the Humanist Association was not going to be the vehicle for presenting a, a rational alternative to pseudoscience and, and religion. And so he ended up forming the organization PSYCOP, the Committee for the Scientific Investigation of Claims of the Paranormal, and uh, another organization which was kind of a rival to the American Humanist Association, the Center for Inquiry, to, uh, to publish the magazine uh, Free Inquiry. That was in the, in the uh, um, early 70s. The uh, main aims of PSYCOP, I think, are really important to, to, to think about because... Um, those of us who are still involved in the skeptics movement uh, uh, might want to uh, keep these aims in mind um, as we try to do what we're, what we're trying to do. The main thing was, was that in the mid-70s, there were a lot of uh, pseudoscientists of various sorts, from chiropractors to uh, naturopaths. These people would, would um, uh, try to cash in on the prestige of science, uh, while at the same time saying something completely opposite to what science is about. Um, this is really the heart of the, the, the term pseudoscience, uh, pseudo meaning fake. Uh, Kurtz's enterprise was to try and at least let these guys stand for what they really believed in without using the cloak of science to, to uh, uh, justify their claims. One thing that Kurtz was very adamant about and something which, uh, which really struck me and probably what got me into the movement more than anything was the idea that um, uh, academics in the universities or um, in, in think tanks or uh, people who should be in the forefront of making the case that science doesn't support these kinds of claims just weren't doing their jobs. Um, and there's a number of reasons for that. The most cynical and, and uh, um, negative of the reasons were basically that uh, people don't get tenure for debunking pseudoscience. People at universities uh, get, their, get their tenure for actually doing work in their own field, not uh, debunking somebody else. Um, so it was one of those things that one did as a labor of love rather than uh, as a career advancement move. Um, but probably more, more importantly, was the fact that uh, most scientists were engaged in their own research. That's what they really cared about. And the reasons why pseudoscience is pseudoscience is it, too trivial for them. It's the kind of thing that uh, nobody wants to go back to, to uh, uh, what they were thinking when they were a nine-year-old uh, when they are doing advanced research in quantum mechanics. And so they just you know, never wanted to take the time to do it. And they also recognized those people who had tried to do it at certain times. They recognized that uh, they got a lot of hostility and sometimes career uh, uh, problems with 
trying to debunk pseudoscience. Uh, Lee and I, when we were discussing what we're going to talk about today, mentioned that the, the very last meeting of the BC skeptics, some uh, 25 years after the time I'm speaking of now, we were going to a debate with a, a creation scientist. Um, and we first of all had uh, a very, very well-respected uh, biologist from SFU who's going to uh, be on the side of the angels on the issue for us. Um, and later he decided not to do it because uh, the, the particular guy that we got to debate the, the devil side of the issue uh, was pretty, uh, well, I'm trying, I'm trying to look for the, the uh, nice word for it. Uh, didn't know very much science. But that was an idiot. Yeah, that's, I, I, I do have to count on me to, to get the, 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 the proper description. Um, you know, so he backed out, and we later got uh, a very, very good person who, who had debated many uh, such people in the, in the past, Scott Goodman, uh, to do our side of the, of the story. So that, that was, you know, 25 years later, and it still is true today that uh, a lot of academics just don't want to get involved with these people because, uh, you know, it's hard to wash your hands afterwards <laughs> after you've shaken hands with them. And another, I think, more important for the lack of uh, energy amongst academics to debate the paranormal. So this is something uh, philosophically respectable, I think, is that um, we, we all know, given that we're on this side of the intellectual issues, that the onus of proof is on the person who makes the claim, not on the um, person who wants to debunk it. Um, and uh, that notion of the onus of proof is probably one of the most important uh, central themes in philosophy, and establishing who has the onus of proof in a, in, a, in a given issue. And the simple fact of the matter is that the onus of proof is on the person who makes the paranormal claim, not on the person who wants to debunk it. So given the fact that the pseudoscientists don't bother to do the research, don't bother to provide the evidence, instead they rely on other kinds of ways of promoting their message, it's kind of a downer for any academic to come in there and, and debate them. And secondly, they just say, well, you know, that's their job to present me the evidence, and then I'll tell you what I think of it. So when no before any evidence comes in, there's no work for the um, scientists to do. Um, and that was the, the common attitude in, in the mid-70s. And uh, Paul Kurtz made the case to those of us. I was a young academic at that time. Um, and can certainly convince me that, uh, well, wait a minute, uh, the, you know, the taxpayers uh, pay for my nice, cushy um, time to sit around and read books and think and uh, occasionally talk to students. Uh, and so, really, I owe something back. I should, you know, try to uh, promote the message of rationality as best I could uh, to a wider audience. And that was Paul Kurtz's main contribution, I think, to the history of skepticism to get academics to live up to their responsibilities to the wider public. Um, and, and I'm certainly in line with that. So Kurtz um, got people engaged in a number of, of things that they hadn't been involved in before. Things like uh, responding to um, paranormal claims and in uh, TV shows. You remember the gamut of uh, uh, in search of and the truth about kinds of uh, specials that we still see on TV today, uh, the claims that uh, people make that quantum mechanics uh, uh, shows why homeopathy can work, 
and, and so on, um, uh, Kurtz got people um, in the academic community to show why that just wasn't so. Two things that he, he did, I think, tell us something about why the skeptics movement took the turn that it did. Uh, two particular events. One was um, in the early days of PSYCOP, Kurtz uh, gathered together first colleagues of his at Buffalo University, um, uh, including one character by the name of Mario Trutzi, a sociologist. And uh, again, Lee will have something to say that's probably more accurate than what I will say about sociologists. Uh, sociologists are kind of the real defenders of that doctrine of relativism that I mentioned earlier, the idea that there really is no truth and what, you, uh, what your culture tells you to believe is the best, uh, best you can have on things. Mario Trutzi uh, was, you know, being a sociologist, a kind of proponent of that view, although Kurtz didn't realize it at the time. And one of the first moves that Psychop did was to found a journal, the originally called the Zetetic. And uh, Mario Trutzi was the um, first editor of that journal. And uh, what he tried to do was to try to make it into kind of a, a forum where skeptics could debate with true believers about uh, these issues. And, and uh, that, wasn't, that wasn't Kurtz's idea. Kurtz's idea was that there's all kinds of places where you can go to find out about homeopathy and Reiki and, and the like. What the, the journal should be would be a place to give the, the, the scientific view about these questions. So um, there was a kind of bit of a nasty fallout between Kurtz and, and, uh, and uh, Tritzi over that. And that was one, that, that was one lesson that, that Kurtz learned. Um, and a second event happened, which also was probably more influential in why skepticism went the way that it did under Kurtz. Astrology was probably the biggest uh, source of irrationality in the mid-70s, um, less so today than, than it was then. And uh, what Kurtz wanted to do was to, to uh, focus on, on that issue, uh, on that uh, pseudoscience first. And uh, there, there was a character, or a pair of characters actually, Michel and Francois Gonquelin, uh, French people who were basically astrologers but didn't want to call themselves that. They had their own name for what they were doing. They called it astrobiology. Um, and the claim was that um, their particular science was totally different from the uh, kind of thing you read about in the, in the uh, morning paper, the astrology columns in the morning paper. Uh, theirs was based on scientific, uh, on, on scientific grounds. And actually, as far back as 1955, that pair made the claim that, uh, uh, for example, sports champions um, were, would be more likely to be born under the sign of Mars, uh, which is kind of a traditional astrological claim. Um, uh, Mars is the god of war, and of course sports is a kind of war between two teams, and so it's only natural you expect that uh, soccer players would be more likely to be born under, under the Mars sign. And he, he did uh, a number of studies which, which claimed to demonstrate that. Well, in, in, in 1976, uh, the, one of the first projects of Psychop was to uh, look into um, those claims and, and, to, and to do a replication of, of the Gonquin studies. Actually, Psychop was not the first, first to do that. Uh, a, a Belgian group, the Committee Parrot, attempted to replicate their studies in 1967. Uh, and failed. They got they got fewer chance results for, for, for 
under that sign. But the but Gonklin, the Gonklins were were adamant and probably as good as Paul Kurtz at uh, getting their message out. Um, and the claim was still fully alive in 76, and so Cy Copper went to do another replication. But uh, things turned badly um, at one point when a colleague of Kurtz's, probably, I think if I remember correctly, a former student of his, a guy by the name of Dennis Rollins, who is quite a, a good statistician, was part of the team to do, you, you can imagine the immense amount of statistical work that would be involved in checking over all these sports champions and trying to decide whether they were born under the proper signs and so on. Um, the, the, the lead statistician was a, a, a very, very prominent uh, statistician who uh, was at, at Buffalo at that time, later moved to Harvard, by the name of Marvin Zellin. But Dennis Rollins was one of the sort of more peons who were doing just some of the more dog's body work in the, in the study. Um, he claimed to have actually found in the, the enormous amount of data that, uh, that was gathered evidence that Gonklin, the Gonklins were in fact right. Um, and in the media, and things became quite ugly. Um, uh, there were a number of people who were claiming that Paul Kurtz and, and uh, Martin Zellin had covered up the data because they, they were just zealots who wanted to prove uh, their side of the the question no matter what, and, and uh, it was a kind of an embarrassment for this new organization that started at the time. Well, the net result of those two incidents, Tripsey and, and Rollins, was that Kurtz decided that uh, the organization needed to be very careful in uh, who would speak for the organization and who would be um, in a position to um, talk to the media. Um, and so from that point on, the, the Psychop organization was very much top down. The deal was it was basically Paul Kurtz. There was an executive council, which uh, some of you remember my brother Barry um, was actually on the executive council at some later point, uh, not at the very beginning, but later on. Uh, there was a group of seven or eight people on that council who were the, the only people who could speak for Psychop itself. Everybody else, there were 250 or 300 scientific and technical consultants, uh, but they weren't to speak on behalf of the organization itself. Um, the, the, the idea was going to be that PSYCOP would be the um, organization that would disseminate the information from scientific studies and uh, you know, put the message out and, in fact, maybe commission people or encourage them to do scientific studies of paranormal claims. But um, uh, Psychop itself wasn't going to be involved after this Algonquins. Uh, and so uh, that was, in fact, the major impetus of the journal Skeptical Inquirer was to publish the results of studies done by other people. And Kurtz made a special effort to encourage academics to do the studies um, and to talk about their studies and go to the media about them and to publish them in the Skeptical Inquirer. But uh, uh, Psychop itself didn't take a position on those things. And that, that uh, was the policy of Psychopa all the time that it, it existed until it turned into, um, until it shortened its name from Psychop to Psy, the Committee for Scientific Inquiry, in the, uh, about 10 or 12 years ago. Well, uh, the BC skeptics um, uh, started out in the uh, mid-'80s when... Uh, uh, Psychop got the idea that uh, it would be a good thing if there were sort of local groups in other countries and spread out as much as possible. 
And uh, at that time, there was um, an Australian guy who was, who was the head of an organization of skeptics in Australia, Mark Plummer, who came to uh, uh, Buffalo, to the uh, mecca of skepticism, uh, where Paul Hertz was. And Lee will remember uh, uh, Mark. He was a very energetic guy, and very, <clears throat> very amusing, and uh, a really good motivator. And a good amateur musician, yeah, yeah. Uh, and uh, so what? What actually happened was uh, uh, he sent to Barry and me a, a list of subscribers to the Skeptical Inquirer, and that's what I was speaking about earlier. The very first meeting of the what became the BC Skeptics held at uh, uh, SFU um, in uh, 1986, and that was that was the beginning of our organization. Well, another part of the way Kurtz had things organized. Uh, was that uh, each of these uh, local groups would be um, ones that shared the aim of PSYCOP, uh, the aim of, of uh, doing original research to, to uh, back up the claims that we made and making the claims in the, in the media um, to try and promote rationality. Uh, but the organization was not officially a part of PSYCOP. It was an independent organization, um, which... Uh, um, had no official connection to, to PSYCOP. So when we started, um, we were our, our own organization. We ended up following a lot of the principles of, uh, uh, of PSYCOP. Uh, basically, there were, uh, what, uh, four or five of us that became the executive of the BC Skeptics, uh, Lee and me and uh, uh, Bill. Were you actually... You, you, you left by that point? Uh, I, you were just you're on your way to, to leave. I left six months later. Uh, Ah, okay, yeah. Uh, anyway, uh, we uh, basically spoke for the organization as in the same model as, as PSYCOP. Uh, we uh, also had another thing which we, which we had that was similar to the, the parent organization but for very different reasons. Um, Paul Kurtz, in founding the uh, PSYCOP organization, also founded the other organization, the CFI, the Center for Inquiry, to look at uh, religious claims. Um, and he kept a strict sort of division at the, at the beginning um, between those two organizations, in part because uh, there was a very rich donor um, who was sending Kurtz a fair bit of money for Psychop at the time, who was very religious. He was a fundamentalist Christian. Uh, and the reason he supported Psychop is that Psychop was, was debunking ghosts and, uh, and all of those, those sorts of things. And his particular brand of fundamentalist Christianity uh, also didn't believe in that. Uh, but on the other hand, he, this guy probably wouldn't have been so loose with the purse strings if uh, he saw Kurtz debunking religion in general. This guy was giving money to Psychop, but he didn't have to think he was giving any money to CFI. So that was one large reason for the originally keeping these two organizations separate. Uh, we followed the same path in the BC Skeptics but for very different and I think much better reasons. Uh, the reason was that the uh, BC Humanist Association was already up and going and uh, uh, an important organization way before the Skeptics. Uh, some five, six years, I think, the organization had been going at that point. And uh, an opportunity to thank you guys again. Uh, you gave us some seed money to um, start us off with the, with the BC skeptics. And so, of course, 
our, our uh, group decided, well, all right, we'll concentrate on the paranormal and the other kinds of things because the humanists were already uh, doing a good job on the religion stuff. And so we had that division, uh, which worked in some respects, but, uh, but as I mentioned before, many of you um, came to our meetings and we came to some of yours in those days too. Uh, we were in many ways very close, but we were uh, separate organizations. Uh, let me just give you um, one more thing, which I think is, is really kind of important before I turn things, things over to Lee. I think basically there are three things that um, a movement like the BC Humanists or the uh, CFI, which is taken over for the BC Skeptics, or the CSI or any larger organization uh, might want to be involved in. Two of them I've mentioned, they were sort of part of the very foundations of, of PSYCOP. Uh, the, the, the research into uh, paranormal or religious claims and the dissemination of information about uh, the results of those those researches. Um, there's a third thing, I think, which uh, groups like us can make an important uh, contribution to, and that's the kind of, shall I use the Christian term without offending anybody, the, the sort of fellowship that comes from um, the meetings that you're having now and the skeptics in the pub that CFI runs and, and so on, um, a, a chance for people to... I, I want to be careful in the, way I, in the way I phrase this, not for people to, to go deal with like-minded people, um, because I was talking to Frank before we started today, uh, I think one of the most important things you can ever do is to find somebody that you disagree with um, and have it out with them. And the best way for you to um, um, get your own thoughts in order is to present them to somebody else who disagrees with you and is going to keep you on your toes. But it's not so much that you, you, you want to have a, a community of people who think the same way you do and agree with you. Yeah, that astrology is real bullshit, isn't it? But instead, you want people who sort of approach their thinking in the same way. That is, that you are willing to suspend judgment on something until you get some evidence. Um, that you're not willing to let your emotions um, uh, decide for you what you're going to believe. Um, that you're prepared to change your mind when you gather evidence you didn't have before. And, and this is something that's really, really difficult. Um, it's a kind of balancing act that, that uh, some of us are better at than others, but nobody's perfect at it. But on the one hand, you want to make sure that you're not pig-headed and totally without any sense of that you might be wrong about something. You want to avoid that. But on the other hand, you don't want to be entirely wishy-washy and relativistic. You say, well, geez, I don't know. Who knows? Could be. Because, you see, if you do want to have an argument with somebody, you've got to start with a position that, uh, that people can agree or disagree with before you can get anywhere. And so you need to get that attitude, which is really the hardest skepticism, of being able to say, well, all right, the evidence that's come down so far makes me say, this is how it is. Okay? And I'm going to stick to it. I'm not going to just give it up because you don't like what I'm saying and I don't want to offend you. I'm not going to give it up because it makes me feel uncomfortable to have to believe that I'm going to be dead and, and there's not going to be anything after that. Um, you know, I'll change my mind if the evidence comes down another way. But until then, I've got this position which I will um, 
do my best to bring out there. And of course, one of the things that has kept me in touch with the humanists and the skeptics for 30 some odd years is that skeptics and, and humanists intuitively understand the importance of that willingness to argue, willingness to entertain uh, evidence before coming up with their beliefs. And as I say, one of the great advantages of, of, of these groups is that it gives you a chance to get together with people who are like that. So that, that is, is something which I think uh, I'd, I'd like you to sort of keep in mind as I pass things over to Lee. Um, um, what has happened in the local scene is that uh, what started out being more of the emphasis on research and uh, examination of paranormal claims and the dissemination of information through the media um, has now become more of the social aspect of it. Um, and I'll, I'll make you an offer, um, and I'm sure Lee is behind this too. Lee and I have had a fair bit of experience over the years, uh, not only shooting our mouths off and debunking claims, but trying to actually do some research to determine whether there's anything there or not. If I can tell my own work a little bit, I, I've done research into uh, graphology, uh, therapeutic touch, um, Sai Baba, and, and I'm quite happy now in my retirement, uh, now that I've got uh, more time on my hands, uh, to engage with anybody who wants to do some investigation of these things. And uh, I think it would be kind of fun if we, if we got some more of that going again. Uh, along with the other things that we do. So uh, there's my offer to you. Uh, if ever you want to get involved in some ghost busting or uh, a psychological experiment of some sort to test a claim, let's get something going. Just one last point. Part of this change from the uh, sort of public media uh, debunking, why we're doing less of that now, is a change in people's worldview, which... Um, I'm kind of concerned about. In one, in one way, I'm kind of happy. In another way, I'm kind of concerned. Skepticism has uh, probably become more acceptable since Paul Kurtz got things going in 1976, 40 years ago. But not entirely in a positive way. Not that it's entirely understood in the way that I was describing it a moment ago as the refusal to uh, accept a claim until you get evidence for it. And if you don't get evidence to say so, um, skepticism is, has come to mean for a lot of people uh, a kind of general distrust of uh, expertise, of people who might be in a position to know something. We saw last week um, that in a big way in, our, in, in, in the United States, Trump was elected precisely because he knew nothing. Um, that, was marked, that was counted as a good thing. And, and there is a tendency which is often called skepticism, and I would stop calling myself a skeptic if, if uh, I had to be branded with those people. There's a, this, this tendency to say, well, and, you know, everybody's, everybody's full of bullshit, and you, know, you can't <laughs> trust anybody, and if you, if, the more letters you've got behind your name, the less you probably know. It's one of those people who've got some, some common sense out there in the world who know anything. And uh, I, mean, I think that's a very dangerous kind of thing, and I sure hope that it doesn't keep to the name skepticism. And what's disturbing me is that this trend is on the rise, and there's sort of less call now for people who uh, might be in a position to know about uh, the paranormal or um, religion, the people who've actually studied about it, thought about it, and, 
and gather evidence and found that there wasn't any, there's less reason for those people to be um, asked for their opinions now than there used to be. Um, and so that's in part the reason why I think the skeptics movement locally has not got the profile in the, in the media that, that it used to have. We used to be asked, we're sort of on the, if I could put it this way, we were on the Rolodexes of um, um, every reporter in town and whenever something in the paranormal came up, they would come to us. Uh, now we're not on the address book on the, on the computers of those people as much as we used to be. Uh, why? I think in part because you know authorities aren't given the credit that they used to get. And I think that's kind of a bad thing. And I have no idea how to turn that around. I, mean, I couldn't possibly defeat Donald Trump. But any thoughts you have about that I think are really important to try and put forth and try to do something about. So I'll stop at this point. Uh, Lee is, is going to tell us some more about some of the war stories from our, our own local group because he's been the newsletter editor and been involved since, since day one in the movement. So. Great. I'm told I have a pretty loud voice, so can everybody hear me all right? For an occasion such as this, I really want to sing the praises of Dale Beierstein and his brother, perhaps more than anything. Uh, Barry Beierstein died, literally dropped dead at work, quite surprisingly, in 2008. Yeah. yeah. And uh, he marched a huge array of really, really interesting people through the city, um, James Randi, uh, Jerry Andrews, a magician's magician, uh, Ray Hyman, who, uh, among other things, got paid by the U.S. government to look into the military applications of remote viewing, uh, to take down Russian rockets and stuff like that without getting out of your easy chair, which uh, is weird, but there you go. Uh, I recall Glenn Hardy, uh, who was the past president of the BC Humanists, and he was a a lot of our meetings, as I recall, and uh, a delightful fellow. Is he still with us? Um, yeah. yeah. Okay, great. Glad to hear it. I hate asking questions like that. <laughs> oh, okay, great. Well, I was looking forward to seeing him, but um, and I, I must—I have a great deal of admiration for the humanists. My, my uh, atheist days started listening to George Carlin albums in the 1970s because that's the only time and place where you could hear anything like that at all. They canceled Smothers Brothers on television because they cracked a joke about Moses, and it was all over. Uh, speaking of jokes, two dyslexics walk into a bra. Uh, a woman walks into a bra, and bartender says, what do you have? She says, I'll have a double entendre, so he gives it to her. <laughs> you guys have a much more difficult problem than the BC skeptics did in a large, to a large extent. If you recall the Black Knight from the, light, uh, from the Holy Grail, every time you lopped off an arm or a leg or something like that, you just go, tis but a scratch, and keep coming at you. And it seemed like no matter how much you pounded them down into a bloody little pulp, it just kept on coming back no matter what. And of course, you could never point to any evidence one place or another and say, see, that proves me right and you wrong, or vice versa. BC skeptics, on the other hand, stuck to empirical stuff where we could do that. So I sort of see it as the easy road, and uh, you guys took the, the tougher path. Um, when we got started, I wrote a letter from an article I read in the Scientific American, I think in 1985, uh, about skeptics groups. And I was pretty skeptical. If anybody likes this t-shirt, by the way, just Google the phrase. It's a wonderful website. Uh, Bill's wearing another t-shirt from the same site of atheist and uh, anti-religious kind of stuff. 
uh, all available for a few beans. I, I wrote that letter to Barry Beierstein, and that, within a few months, we got together for the first meeting with BC Skeptics. Uh, we weren't the BC Skeptics at the time. In fact, that was a big uh, discussion. Uh, one of the things that we discussed in our first meeting was what do we call the newsletter? And uh, we kicked that around for about five minutes until Barry pulled out the title from his back pocket, which I think he'd been carrying around for like 20 years or something like that, which is, I think we should call it the Rational Inquirer. And everybody went, perfect! And that's where it went. Uh, the newsletter, I think, tried to reflect the uh, Skeptical Inquirer, and largely because of Barry and Dale and other academics whom I got to meet through my association, we published some pretty good stuff, and a lot of it got a lot of play around the world, and I was really happy about that. Um, but the first day I was in, I was skeptical. It was a bunch of people I'd never met before. I thought they were all just going to be a bunch of hoity-toity academics, perhaps, a group that I associate myself with, but nevertheless, I was still skeptical. And Barry Beierstein introduced himself, and he said, I'm a psychologist. And you might recall the McMartin preschool incident um, in those days, right? This is very big in my head, you know, and I'm sure uh, my, my face probably went something like this. <laughs> what am I doing here? And he said, no, 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 you don't understand. I'm an experimental psychologist. You know, we torture rats for a living and, you know, <laughs> test response times from people when we provide certain types of stimulus and that sort of thing. And I said, no, well, that's okay. <laughs> and... Uh, uh, time march forward. Um, to skip a, a long way forward, uh, I told the exact same story at uh, the funeral of Barry Beierstein at the Diamond Club at SFU. And afterwards, Dale came and thanked me for what I'd said. And I said, well, I didn't really say anything. He says, yeah, you did. Because you pissed off half the people in the room. He <laughs> says, why? Because half of them are clinical psychologists. And oh, right. I hadn't thought of that. And... Uh, that's not the first time in my life where I've said a few things to people which I didn't think about before I, I said them. The other time that's relevant here was when uh, we skipped to the very end of the BC Skeptics and the meeting that Dale was talking about with Richard Peachy, a part-time science teacher out of Abbotsford. And Barry had spent several months, and I have followed the email trail, of um, trying to negotiate a discussion about intelligent design because that was hot and big in the news at the time. And we had a guy named Ron Eisenberg at this meeting. Richard Peachy was there, I was there, and Barry was there. And it was the first time we were all in the same room at the same time, and Peachy sat down next to me, and I wasted no time. I said, so, what are you? Creationist, fundamentalist, wackadoodle ID guy, pick one. And we all expected him to say, well, I'm here to talk about intelligent design. He said, oh, I'm a straight-up creationist. 6,000 years old, end of story. And um, Ron Eisenberg said, done and dusted, I'm out, because he's dealt with these people before, didn't want anything to do with it. Um, and both Barry and I looked at each other and said, what the hell have we been talking about for the last several months? Because we wanted to talk about ID, not creationism. But the wheels had been rolling, and the date was set, and the people involved were uh, booked to come, and we had our meeting. And it was the last of... Four to three times, at least, I can think of where the BC skeptics got abused. For those of you who might have been there, the meeting was packed. We had uh, publicized it more than most. 
There were a lot of skeptics there. There was a guy named Scott Goodman, who was a science teacher and a very good uh, creationist argumenter, shall we say, and um, Richard Peachy himself, and a truckload, and I mean literally a truckload of people from Abbotsford with all kinds of brochures and stuff like that telling you why you were wrong and they were right and you're going to burn in hell and so on. Mm -hmm. <laughs> um, from a, a skeptic's perspective, if you were listening to the arguments, that the case was pretty airtight on our side, but needless to say, we convinced nobody. Dale mentioned our, our first big fight, which is graphology. Uh, graphology is handwriting analysis. These are people who will tell you whether you're a potential pedophile based on how you dot your I's and cross your T's. <laughs> and if you go back to the 1970s, um, most ads, if you were looking for a job, you looked in the paper and you'd look for you know, a want ad in the Vancouver Sun or something, and most of them, plus 50% anyways, would say, please submit a handwritten covering letter along with your resume. They wouldn't tell you why, but the reason is because they were handing them off to graphologists who were telling them whether they're going to be good hires or bad hires or whatever. And this guy basically killed that industry in British Columbia for a while. For a while, yes. I taught BC uh, Hydro, uh, McMillan Bodell, a bunch of other All major players. and school boards. Except Chilliwack, come on, nobody can touch them. They're thick as bricks out there. But uh, everybody else was on board, and they stopped using graphology uh, as a mechanism. Now, you could argue that this technology was going to kill it anyways, because how do you submit a handwritten covering letter in an email, which is the only way things go out today? I know it could be done, but it would be a pretty weird thing to ask for. But uh, as a consequence of that, we lined up a woman named Linda Pitney. And Linda Pitney was a graphologist out of Toronto, and she came to Vancouver, and she challenged the BC skeptics, and the BC skeptics challenged her back, and we all agreed that we'd have a big test, and she yacked it up in all the papers and got interviewed and probably got a lot of clients, and we hammered out a protocol and both agreed to it, and then she... Bugged off back to Toronto, we never heard from her again. <laughs> the second meeting that stands out in my mind was with Tai Chi, not Tai Chi, Qi Gong. Qi Gong. We had a Qi Gong master in, and this one was also packed at the gills, uh, SRO as they say. And um, we had arranged a, a, a test for him. This guy swore up and down that he could beam Qi into water. <laughs> so, in other words, he just do that, and he, he said that we could take the water away and we could bring it back, and he would point to the glass that he had done that to and not the other ones. And we said, fine, we can do that, and that's a pretty damn easy experiment to set up. So he agreed to do that, all the people piled in, the meeting got started, and he said, I've had a long day at GE. <laughs> I've just been cheeing since the morning, cheeing all afternoon, and I'm all cheeed out. <laughs> but, if you want to find out what wonderful things I can do to make you more healthy, I'll be glad to answer any questions. And meanwhile, and he went up to the whiteboard, and for reasons that to this day I still don't understand, he wrote down F equals GMM over R squared. Newton's formula for gravity. What the hell that's got to do with she? I have no idea. <laughs> but that's what he did. And when it finally came to questions, you know, Half the audience's arms went up like that, and the other half went up like that. This is the skeptical side. This is the not-so-skeptical side. Skeptical side said, you're full of crap, and he didn't really say anything. 
everybody on the other side said, I got this pain in my side. What do you think I should do? And they were there essentially for free medical advice. <laughs> Another amusing story, Paul Kurtz uh, hung his hat in Buffalo, New York. And when he came to Vancouver, he was very impressed by the city. Of course, visually, it's very impressive. We were driving in from Pelican Bay in um, Granville Island to the Byerstein residence in Port Moody. And uh, we had just started our journey when he said, so, I'm just curious, drive me through the crappiest part of town. And we were going through Pigeon Park, and I said, here it is, rock bottom. He said, wow, this is pretty good, no burning cars or anything. <laughs> All right, yeah, Buffalo, I forgot. <laughs> what else? Do we have another antagonist who screwed us around? I'm trying to think, uh, yeah, we had lots of them. Uh, is it time for some questions for the audience? Yeah, sure, why not? Uh, there you go. You Some questions. That mic, I'll pass this mic around. Um, about truth, isn't it an absolute certainty that the um, Earth goes around the sun and that the periodic table is pretty solid? Does anybody question those two truths? <laughs> I, unfortunately, I, you know, you'd, you'd think that uh, that was what's called a reductio ad absurdum amongst philosophers. That you know, you you, you make a point that you know, makes other people look so stupid that they they better back down. But but there are people who question even the truths of those kinds of things. Um, and I, I'm I'm embarrassed to admit that there are some philosophers who do that. But again, they're they're sort of centered mainly in sociology departments. Uh, they, they go by various names. Um, uh, social construction of reality, uh, uh, postmodernism, uh, and so on. And their basic line just is that uh, uh, truths of the sort that Frank mentioned, uh, ones uh, uh, the, the, the basis of science and, and, and what serve as the, the foundation of everything else that we claim to know, and would really be would, re would really be a bad thing if they turn out not to be so, that they can be questioned too because what they are really are simply a function of those people who happen to be in power and who control everything, the scientists and the people like those, they, they ram the stuff down the rest of our throats because they own the media and they own the, along with the Jews, they own the, you know, the, the, the sources of power. The and they, and they just, they, they just, you know, put this view ahead of us. And on the other hand, the native um, spiritualists and the feminist ecologists and these other people just don't get a chance to put their line out. So, you know, the only reason you believe in the periodic table is that you got pushed into it by people who just rammed it down your throat and you have no reason to believe it at all. It's certainly true that everything I think I know I learned from other people, but science is well-founded by all the experts in each particular subject. Oh, yeah. It's testable. Yeah. One of yeah. The, yeah. I, I think everybody's probably had this experience in this room, I'm guessing, that you, you walk into a party and somebody said, oh, I just popped this pill and I got, it cured me of the cold, and you find out it's homeopathy. And you try to explain it, and you realize that before you can even start to explain to that person, you've got to establish an entire layer of epistemology about which they have never spent two minutes in their lives even thinking about. And that's one of the hugely refreshing things about getting into groups like this, is you know that that, that base work is already there, and you don't have to start over again every time you talk about it. And to go to your remark, I would suggest that the people who are buying into homeopathy are saying, screw the periodic table. What the hell do they know? Personal experience trumps science, and that's the way most people feel. Uh, well, I guess this is a good time to plug the Vancouver Skeptics, which uh, has, in a way, taken over some of the things that the VC Skeptics were doing. 
the first skeptic event I went to was the Langara creationist uh, evolution debate. All right. Our swan song. Cool. Yeah. <laughs> and uh, I did go to one SFU VC skeptics talk um, a month before your brother passed away. Uh, so there's a bit of a, a transition there. I started the Vancouver Skeptics in the Pub Facebook group, and that has been organizing monthly events. Started with one downtown at the Railway Club every month, and we were up to as many as seven or eight. Now there's about six monthly events downtown, uh, Kitsilano, North Van, uh, New West, and a couple out in Surrey Langley. There, we also promote the Cafe Scientifique talks, where there's a local scientist talking about their research. And uh, as you mentioned, it is more of a social organization, social event, more, more than uh, testing claims. Occasionally, we'll have presentations. We also organized a skeptic camp, free one-day conference type events almost every year since uh, 2008. So if you're interested in finding out more about those, if you Google Vancouver Skeptics, uh, go to vancouverskeptics.org. There's an event calendar on there, and uh, you can find out, just drop by any of our events. It's not a membership organization. It's just free to attend, hang out with like-minded people, although we do find enough to disagree about, <laughs> and uh, just have a good time meeting people who are also science enthusiasts, interested in skepticism. And uh, we tend to be people who are listening to the same skeptical podcast, like a Skeptic's Guide to the Universe, reading the same skeptical blogs, so the, keeping up with those kind of current events. For about uh, three and a half years, you and I were on co-op radio together, uh, doing a skeptics radio show, uh, which I guess would be the official last act of the DC skeptics, you might say. Uh, oddly enough, we it was a great show, we had a lot of fun doing it, but in the end, we all marched out together over, believe it or not, vaccinations as an issue. The uh, uh, management of the radio station was uh, prepared to bend over backwards to make sure that we were fair and balanced when there is no call for fair and balanced in this particular argument. <laughs> and our biology guy said, I ain't got time for this. And we all said, well, if you're going, we're going. So, so by the way, following what Fred said, uh, we, we used to have something called a uh, podcast uh, Made in Canada called Skeptically Speaking. Now it's called Science for the People. I also highly recommend it. You mentioned that um, humanists and uh, skeptics instinctively know uh, to look for um, for evidence. Um, but uh, I think that everybody knows that. What happens is, how do we know what is evidence? And my uh, question is, don't you think that it will be a good objective for our all of our different organizations in this field to try to push for teaching the scientific method in high school. It should be, I mean, nobody should leave high school without not understanding what counts as evidence. There are slight movements in that direction. Things are getting better in the teaching of science in the public schools. Um, but you're right, there's still a lot more to be done. And if, if people had that basic understanding, uh, they, they wouldn't be wasting a lot of time on, on, on paranormal claims. Get them when you're, when you're young. Okay. Uh, just one quick point on the astrology area. If you go look on the internet, it's unfortunately bad news. Belief in astrology was declining until 2004. Most of the polls now show it's actually starting to increase again. The, belief the interesting thing is, is that unfortunately there's a big belief among millennials. 
And women believe astrology more than men, so if there's anything we can claim, or whatever. The question I've got to you is that, given just what happened in the U.S. in the election of Donald Trump, do scientists not have more of a responsibility to speak of it? It's not enough to do research and put out these great papers and, and run these models. If they don't speak out, this is what's going to happen to us. You know who Donald Trump is appointing to yeah. oversee climate change? Myron Ebel. He worked for the American Enterprise Institute that's supported by the coal industry and Exxon. And this, is the, this is the largest scientific country in the world. If, if, if climate change is so important, they have got to get off their, their stools at the university. They've got to start yelling and screaming and calling these people the idiots they are. No, I, I can't agree with you more. And as, as I say, that was sort of the, the main contribution that Paul Kurtz made at the foundation of Psychop and the, 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 the new skeptics movement to get academics to uh, be more willing to um, just converse with the, the general public over the things that they had expertise in. Uh, unfortunately, what those of us have been around for a long time have uh, discovered is that it's hard work and not a career booster. Uh, it can sometimes be very judgmental. I mean, we were talking about my brother earlier. Uh, uh, he faced a fairly severe onslaught against his reputation at SFU uh, because I of his dream healer. Right? Yeah. Well, uh, the one goes goes back a, a long ways. Uh, there was a person who actually taught my brother when SFU first started. My brother was one of the original undergraduate students there in '65. Uh, this guy uh, was a great person to drink beer with in the pub. And so he became friends with my brother, and later when my brother became a faculty member, if I can tell this, the story in a catty version, um, he was in a, a department that got uh, eliminated. And so basically that was the chance for the university to get rid of him. And he hadn't, he hadn't published a thing in, 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 since he came to SFU in 65, this is about 1990 by this time, he hadn't really done anything except sit in the bar. But he was a grand manipulator at, at, at university politics. And Henry Kissinger's remarked about academia, the reason why the, the, the academic politics is so dirty is that the stakes are so low. Well, uh, this guy played played those games with, with real skill, uh, and he managed to get himself his own department. Basically, nobody else wanted to work with him. And, and what his department was going to be, he was going to be parapsychology. <laughs> and uh, so Barry was actually put in charge of a committee to uh, evaluate whether this would be a viable academic uh, thing or not. Uh, and he got a bunch of other people involved in it, namely me. I was at Mount Sabina College at that time, and a few other people across the province. And uh, we wrote letters to the relevant dean uh, talking about how it would be a real embarrassment for SFU if this guy were allowed to preach that nonsense. And uh, the guy... But to put a long story short, had to find something else that he could claim to be his own department in. Uh, but he had it out for Barry ever since. And so later on, he got uh, in league with Doug Todd, who is still um, writing in the Vancouver Sun, the religion editor, uh, who's never met a flake that he didn't uh, want to tout. Uh, <laughs> and uh, and the, you know, these two guys went after Barry and claimed that he graded uh, his students on the basis of whether they believed in, him, in what he said or not. Um, you know, they, they, they towed, towed company line, and my brother actually had a little bit of difficulty with that. Um, and, and, and that's not unheard of in academia, and that is a part of the reason why academics are somewhat reluctant to speak on the on these matters. You know, 
By the way, Myron Ebel doesn't call himself a climate change uh, uh, denier. He's a climate change skeptic. That, so that, he's yes. taken the scientific uh, terminology of skeptic yes. and, and, and making it look like he's a skeptic. Yeah, I, that's that, that, that's a really disturbing trend. Exactly. I think you know everybody wants to call themselves a skeptic. It's got some sort of positive cachet, <laughs> but but that's who a lot of the skeptics are, and they give us a bad name. My question is: uh, You mentioned about chiropractic and uh, nat naturopathy. The, the trend seems to be that this is in, the acceptance of it is increasing. Is this because the placebo effect is so great that they spend less money? If people go to osteopaths and reflexologists and naturopaths and chiropractors, and then they, they think psychologically they feel better and therefore saves money, do the insurance company really believe these things work? Wasn't it just about four or five years ago that naturopaths were able to, to prescribe certain prescribe, classes of drugs? Yeah, it's, it's psychotropic drugs. Yeah. yeah. The, the money angle, I think, is a big part of it, saving money by these guys charge less per hour than visit. And another thing is, and I just noticed this myself uh, yesterday, I, I think I told, I told you that I, I'm, I'm uh, an escapee from VGH at the moment, they let me out on a day pass to come here. Um, I, on my ward, I, uh, there, there's a rack of pamphlets, one of them is uh, one on, on complementary medicine for cancer. And I was looking at it, and I was trying to, I had no involvement in the, in the design of the thing, uh, uh, but I was trying to what was what, what's the political subtext behind this thing? Because it actually does say that none of these things work for curing cancer, but on the other hand, it might do you some good for pain and other other kinds of things. And it's it's, it's obviously the kind of document that went through a committee, uh, consisting of um, probably some genuine uh, 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 scientific medical people and some flakes. One it just reminded me of a the struggle that's been going on in medicine for a long time. Um, there, there's a fair number of practitioners um, trained in medical schools now who get this line that you got to know about alternative and complementary medicine if for no other reason than your patients are going to want to use it. You got to, um, you know, take into account the fact that they're taking these medications and you know make, make sure that they don't have bad side effects as a result of it. But this is also part of a thin edge of the wedge, uh, elephant suit in the trough under, under the tent kind of phenomenon, where th there's a, a quite a few people who are real believers in this stuff, who are using those arguments to get the stuff into mainstream medicine. The worst case is something that I was involved in at one point, therapeutic touch in the nursing schools. <laughs> therapeutic touch, if I could be very quick about it, is yeah. neither therapeutic nor touch. Yeah, it's, it, <laughs> it's, a, it's, it's a way of manipulating the energy fields around your body to, to uh, if, they're, if they're in line, then you're healthy. If they're out of line, then you're sick. You can and say it's chi. Yeah, 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 yeah. Um, so um, uh, therapeutic touch has taken over nursing schools. Um, now you, you wonder why nurses go to school for four years now rather than the old three. Uh, it's because that fourth year largely consists of a lot of feminist, I don't want to say indoctrination, a lot of feminist courses um, and therapeutic touch and a few other things like that. Let's not get involved in feminism. No, let's, yeah, 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 yeah. Yeah. But, but certainly I'll, I'll, I'll stand by what I said on therapeutic touch. There are sort of a lot of inroads into, into nursing and medicine, a lot of, of clear quackery. Could we, um, could we move on here? Um, just to note with Paul Kurtz, I got grilled by him when I became president of the Medical Skeptics. And the part of the reason why they 
disassociated the local groups from Cyclops because they had a number of situations where uh, groups had formed and then they went along most of the way along with the skeptical stance. But they said, oh, this one over here is real. And just a couple of notes. Um, I think three of the most famous moments in skeptical history were Randy's Million Dollar Challenge, which you guys didn't mention. Um, and you have to, you're a yeller. And the challenge yeah, oh, yeah, that was a big And pop up on Johnny Carson. Uh, oh, yeah. Okay, those, I think, are three of the most famous moments in skeptical history. Yeah, yeah, they're worth mentioning. If you've thank never you. seen Peter uh, Popov, uh, you can find it on YouTube. Peter Popov and uh, Carson, I think, or Randy will pop it right up. It's a, a fabulous debunk. I don't want to give it away because it's too good for words. Yeah. Thank you for all the work you've done over the years in the presentation today. I had another question uh, concerning your the bifurcation that you mentioned earlier on about the going after the woo-woo science and then going after the religion, which is what we do here. I think there's a third emerging area that uh, we've come across a lot. It's the um, the alt-right people. It's the conspiracy uh, people. Uh, I think this is uh, emerging with Donald Trump being elected. I think it's really dangerous you can lump in a whole bunch of things. Mm -hmm. And I wanted to know if you encountered that, what do you, what do you suggest about it? Yeah, I've encountered a few 9-11 conspiracy people. The first thing to say is the thing that I mentioned earlier is that the honest proof lies on the people founding the claim. But something else you mentioned, which I think which is the scary part of it, that usually those conspiracy-minded people are driven by things extra-rational. Uh, you mentioned the hatred and the the, the fear and the mistrust of certain people. Um, that's a way harder thing to deal with rationally with the methods that we're used to dealing with. Them. One, one yeah. of the reasons I don't get terribly involved in social media is because it's the platform for all of these people with their weird ideas. I don't have the time, the energy, or the interest to listen to all that garbage. I like uh, what Christopher Hitchens had to say on that, which is that which can be proposed without evidence can be dismissed without evidence. Uh, when people talk about conspiracy theories, you either go down the rabbit hole or you just got to back up. And I usually say, well, there are people who say we never went to the moon, and there are other people that say we never left the moon. I say put them in a room and let them duke it out. <laughs> we have a couple of more uh, questions here. Do you have an outreach program for uh, people who are interested in uh, learning components, learning critical thinking skills? It's, it's one of the things that seems to have kind of disappeared. The phoenix arose from the ashes. The BC skeptics is, is a little more socially oriented, as you, as you pointed out. But the academic side seems to have disappeared a little bit, and I don't know how to revive it. Well, uh, our, our radio show that we mentioned earlier was an attempt to um, start that. But uh, one possibility would be a continuing ed course at uh, one of the institutions around here on critical thinking and uh, basic scientific reasoning. Uh, I'm game to get in that. As I say, I'm, I'm, I'm retired now, and so I've got some time on my hands. And I'd, I'd be happy to work with anybody who wants to do anything about that. But you're right. I mean, it would be really a good thing if we could get some of that going. I do think a night course or whatever in critical thinking is an excellent idea. And I'm sure that we as a group would probably get behind something like that. It's I, I tried it once with the North Shore uh, yeah. Continuing Education, mm -hmm. lined up the course, you know, did a little work, created a yeah. syllabus, one person showed up. Really? <laughs> it took us about 10 minutes to agree, yeah, yeah. we were all skeptical, then we went home. <laughs> <laughs> there are free online courses. 
Thousands of people can take it at the same time. Yeah, unfortunately, the internet is, is, I don't have to tell you, it's a double-edged sword, right? For every mountain of good information, there's a bigger one of bullshit. Okay, well, thank, uh, thank you all for coming. It was a big meeting. I'm very pleased to hear more about skeptics, because I, I didn't know very much about their origins, Sarah. So I appreciate it, and I'm sure we all did. Thank you very much.